we're, uh, Lord willing, going to finish this, but that material that I gave you uh, that deals with the what is sometimes called the warning passage, if you'll just take that out one more time, and then we're going to move on and move into uh, the end of section chapter 7. Um, it also parallels this chart, these five warning passages. Just the Each one of these warning passages, I'm going to remind you a little bit about the, the structure of this in the book. Each warning passage follows a major doctrinal section, major doctrinal teaching section. And it is really a downward spiral of, of, uh, of, of warnings. We looked at quickly, just very short in the beginning of chapter 2, the warning of those who drift from the word of God, neglect it. And in each case, the author uses the children of Israel. He goes back into the history in the Old Testament. Second is those who doubt the word of God. And again, he uses the example in ancient Israel of them hardening their heart against God's word. This one is a little more detailed. It's longer, and it has a lot of um, controversy surrounding it. You have been very gracious, either because I haven't been doing a real good job of teaching it, or it's not been quite getting across to you. But this, the controversy all revolves around that phrase in verse 6 of chapter 6, fall away. And um, it you could interpret that as some do in English, the English language, that this is someone who's lost their salvation. That is not the way I understand this passage for a lot of reasons. So what the author is doing is you are you are dealing with a group of people, I call it, who are dull to the world, word of God. Uh, uh, if if I, I use the word sluggishness, does that communicate it? Sluggishness? Does it, do you know what that means? It's It's that kind of complacency and apathy, another way of starting to think about it, about the Word of God. It just, I mean, you are a believer. You, you made a faith commitment, but it's just, the, the Word of God is just dull to it. And so the author is saying, okay, you get into a difficult situation, and you think, okay, I've got to start all over again. I got to go back and get saved again. Again, using language we use today, the author is saying that is not the way you should look at this. <clears throat> and so, what he says in verse, um, especially in verse six, and fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You could translate that word shame. Now, it is really impossible. It is really important to remember the important clause. I know this is English grammar. The important clause begins verse four. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And what he did in between, <clears throat> and he he uses the, a number of key phrases, the five spiritual privileges of these people. It isn't a matter of salvation, it's a matter of obedience. It isn't a matter of losing one's salvation, it's a matter of being restored again. So if you look at, if you look at the, um, the sheet that I have reproduced here, which I had the fifth point, and then this, it's in dark blue, number one, if you printed it out in color. 
but the point of chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which we studied last week in some detail. Now, let me read that to you, and you make sure you understand what I'm trying to summarize, because this is what I think the author is saying. For a believer who falls into egregious sin, the solution is not to get saved again, for that is impossible, and it treats Jesus' sacrifice with contempt and shame. You cannot keep re-crucifying Jesus in your life. The solution is to put the wasted years of sin and immaturity behind and move on to maturity. There's no other way. That's what the author is challenging these Hebrew Christians to whom he's writing this book to do. Here's your position. Here's who you are. And he summarizes it with those five statements. Now, what do I do? The solution isn't, okay, I'm going to go back and start all over again. I remember, this is a long time ago, way back when I was still in Pennsylvania, uh, shortly after I got started ministry, but I had a man who came up to me and he said, I got saved again last night. He had been some revival meetings in Southern Lancaster County, and I said, uh, what do you mean? Well, he said, I keep falling back into sin, and this is the 42nd time I've been saved. You know, I mean, that's just, it's, now that's an extreme of what the author is saying here. That is not the way you're supposed to look at this. Because to say, okay, I'm going to go back and start all over again and ask Jesus to forgive me and ask him to come to my life by faith, what the author says, you're treating Jesus with contempt by doing it that way. It, it, it's shameful to do it that way. The solution is one of obedience. Okay, you've got a lot of stuff in the past that you've had to deal with. You, you've come to know Christ, but you've not lived the way he wants you to. All right, get rid of that. Just forget that. You, the Lord's forgiven you for that, now move on. Because the theme of the book, one of the major themes of the book of, of Hebrews is perseverance. Move on. Don't go back. Move on. Grow. Mature. And we saw that last week when he compared baby's milk with the, the meat and potatoes of the Word of God, if you remember. So, you know, do, you, do you have any questions about that? That's the point he's making here. It is, the issue isn't about salvation. If you want to put it another way, the issue is about sanctification. The issue is about obedience to the Lord. So, to not to not to add to the word, but the interpretation to to restore them again to repentance that they had never lost. Um, okay, I'm hearing your words. I'm trying to understand well, so your your question. It's not. You say, I mean, you're saying that, that you don't lose your salvation. <coughs> And, and to restore them again to repentance. But they repented once when they accepted Christ, and, and they, they never lost that repentance. Yeah, now remember, that's, that's right. Remember, the and this is really important, and honestly, a lot of people stumble over this. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, and it means to change your mind about. That's, that's the essence of the word, which then leads to a change of behavior. And so, Fred, in the context, and it really it really makes sense in that way, 
it's you can't restore them again through repentance to change their mind again about Jesus. They did that before. It isn't they need to be reoriented to who Jesus is and what he's done for them. They've already done that. The issue is now one of it, because to keep doing that is to treat what Jesus has done in his good name with contempt and shame. It's a very manipulative way, a manipulative way to look at Jesus. And I mean, that's really putting it in 21st century words. But that's really what he's saying there. If, if every time you get in trouble, kind of go back, okay, Jesus, I'm going to start all over again. You're really treating his finished, completed, once-for-all work on the cross with contempt. You really are. That you're manipulating, just, you get into trouble, okay, I'll go back and start over again. And that's, that's not how the Lord Jesus wants to look at his work. Because once you put your faith in him, the life that he is asking you to live is a life of loving obedience and walking with him. And that, t- that takes time for us to learn that. And a little bit of work, I would say. Well, I mean, it's, we don't, we're not passive about that. But at the same time, it's, 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 approaching, it's approaching our life in Christ where I'm not looking back, I'm looking forward. And yet, I mean, it is, it is the nature of, of us as humans. We still have a lot in our past that we have to deal with. And sometimes it takes quite a while for us to really, really be engaging in the obedient walk with the Lord. It takes time for us to, to learn that. Joel, you were... Yeah, so I guess help me with the distinction or the difference between what the writer is saying not to do here and just, you know, I, you know, I'm not perfect. I either fall into a sin or a pattern and then kind of recognize that and come back. So I'm not necessarily asking for salvation again, but I'm acknowledging my sin, oh, yeah. confessing my sin. Right. So kind of help with that distinction. Well, I think that that's uh, let's let's look at it. I saw. Oh, here it is. Let's look at it. And we, I know we've talked about this before. Let's look at it from this perspective using just this word. He doesn't use that word here, but that would be a part of the salvation dynamic. Forgiveness. The Bible speaks of forgiveness in the New Testament in two ways. The judicial forgiveness and the relational forgiveness. Okay? Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped a little bit, but that's an L. Judicial. This, this is what is settled at the cross. So, I mean, do you understand what I mean by judicial? It's the once for all declaration by God not guilty, you're forgiven, you're acquitted, and so on. This, to, to go back and say, i got to start all over this again, is con- treating with contempt what Jesus right. has done for you. But the relational forgiveness is what 1 John 1.9 is talking about. Because relational forgiveness is to maintain that vibrant, vital relationship when I walk with the Lord. What interrupts that? My sin. And so what John says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What kind of forgiveness is he talking about? Not judicial forgiveness, the relational forgiveness. And it's to, it's to and the word confessor is, is essentially to just agree with God, agree with what he's saying about my life, about my sin. And so to me, what, what the author, just using this word, what the author is saying is this, 
is what I'm interested in you pursuing, not this. Because you keep going back. Now I gotta go and start all over again, go back to the cross and experience the judicial forgiveness and the justification. You're treating the finished work of Jesus with contempt. You're shaming it. And it's manipulative in a sense in your relationship. I always know I can go back and start over again. So I'll just shin to the hill, then I'll go back. And the author is saying, you, that is not. Here's your position. This is who you are. You've been enlightened. You've tasted the Spirit. You know, remember those five things. Mm-hmm. This is who you are. So now, and this is what he's going to lead to. And he'll, in the next paragraph, who does he use as an example? Abraham. Mm-hmm. In the very next paragraph, he's going to use Abraham. He's going to start talking about Abraham as an example of this. <coughs> what did, what's Abraham's life characterized by? Does he make some mistakes? Does he sin? Mm-hmm. Does he stumble? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. So he uses Abraham as an example of someone of faith, but someone who perseverance and who knew how to handle and he stumbled and fell and all that kind of stuff. So does that sort of start to yeah. answer your question? Yeah. 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 So Paul at one point tried to make that same mistake of going back to the cross by saying, I can die the root of the board on your side, and God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. And that, 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 that's the whole thing here. Grace is sufficient for anyone who has accepted Christ as the Savior. Right, right, right. Okay. We, we were going to wait for you, John, but we decided to start. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. Um, so... If you're with me, let me just read and finish the last section. Um, and I don't have that. I don't think I had that on the slide that I presented. Oh, yeah, I did. Okay. It's verse 7 and verse 8. For land that drunk the rain often falls, that often falls in and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near the being and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, that's an agricultural <clears throat> metaphor, an agricultural illustration. And it's not that difficult, but how does that fit in with what he's been saying? And so, if you look at, again, it's the last page in that handout that I gave to you. If you did it in color, it's in blue and underlined and all that. How does that bring to a conclusion this warning and this discussion that he's been with, dealing with and we've been dealing with for almost two weeks? The point of that little passage we just read, just as a field proves its worth by the crop it yields, so a believer bears fruit for God's glory. If the field produces thorns and thistles, that fruit's burned. So what does that mean? The fruit that you bear evidences whether you are judicially forgiven or not. And, the, and if, if there are thorns and thistles in your life, what does God want to do? He wants to get rid of them. And, that's, and we're going to be working our way toward that in chapter 12. That's why the author will speak of God's discipline in our life. And, and remember, discipline is a word 
of it, it, in the original language, it was a word of training. You're training somebody. You're equipping somebody. And in training and equipping somebody for whatever that goal is, a job, a, a leadership position, an athletic competition, you want them to get rid of all the junk that is preventing them from, from achieving that goal. And so discipline is God's getting rid of the junk in our life. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with sanctification. It has nothing to do with our with changing our position. That's secure. It has everything to do with going forward with the Lord. And again, I'll, I'll remind you, and that's really what is, is going on here. And I, I allude to it. The author is using the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 13, that he uses in John 15, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. God gets rid of the junk in our lives. Let's use the language that's in the, the, the figure of, of speech here. God gets rid of the thorns and thistles in our life so that we can bear good fruit in our lives. Now, so that doesn't have anything to do with salvation. So it's tying that loose end. I want to remind you, this doesn't have anything to do with salvation. This is God burning the thorns and thistles in our lives. It's God getting rid of the bad fruit in our life. God getting rid of the junk in our life. And, you know, I'll just use my own life as an example. I've walked with the Lord since 1973, but, 72, 73, but the junk that God's had to get rid of in, in, in these decades. I mean, I could sit down and make a list for you. And it, it, I look back on that, and I just see all the evidence of God at work in my life, helping me to prioritize things, get, get rid of certain things that were really hampering me in terms of my, uh, the life that I think he was calling me to live and so on. And my wife, if she were here, she would get, we, are, we are married 50 years this summer. And it's amazing, it is amazing to me that she has hang in, hung in there with me for 50 years. She'll tell you what I'm really like. But I mean, it's just, and I say all that because that's the grace of God. That's my heavenly father at work in my life getting rid of the junk, the thorns and thistles. And, and that's, that's, that's good. That's okay. And that's what the author is, is trying to help us understand as he brings this somewhat difficult passage to a conclusion. Do you have it? All right. I must say, I'm very thankful. I prayed this morning. Lord, I really want to get through this passage. Help me to make sure that the guys understand it to the best of my ability. Now, to just illustrate that I think this is the right way for us to look at it, look at what he says to them in verses 9 and 10. What's he talking about in those verses? Though we speak this way in your case, beloved, beloved, that word is used only in the New Testament of believers. It's never used of unbelievers. So he's talking to believers. We feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, the love that you have for his name and serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Now stop right there. There it is, be sluggish. That's why I call this sluggishness. So what is he saying? I'm seeing good fruit in your life. I'm seeing the work. I'm seeing the love and serving. I'm seeing that, but I want to see more. Same earnestness to full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. Don't, don't, don't give in. Don't stop. You have hope until the end. Don't be sluggish. So it's like that final encouragement. He is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. So encourage and motivate. Here's what you are. Here's the five things that characterize your life and so on. So when he says be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, who does he bring up? Abraham. Who, if, if, if you are trying to encourage a bunch of sluggish believers who are still as babies eating the milk, drinking the milk of God's word, but you want them to eat the milk and potatoes of God's word, you want to set up a role model for them. You want to set up an example of someone who is moving forward with God, who is, who is pressing on with God, who's persevering. Whom do you want them to imitate? What example does he use? Abraham. Now, let me just think with you about this. Why would you, you if, if, if you are the writer, you yourself are a Jew, and you're writing to Jewish Christians early in the church, first couple decades of the church, Jewish Christian, all the stuff we've talked about, and all the unique. Why would you use Abraham as an example? Would that be because he had a child with the with Sarah's uh, what? Well, Hagar with with her handmaid or whatever. Right, he didn't trust the Lord. Uh, right. Kind of okay. Yeah. He stumbled. He's the father of. He he's the father of Israel. Yeah. He's 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 the. He's where it all began. <laughs> He's the first one called a Hebrew. He is the father of the Jewish race, the Jewish people. And so that's a good example because, hmm, why is Father Abraham a good example for me? And so that's what he does. And I, I put in you notes, know, three, three, why would he use Abraham? I think there's three reasons. Number one, Abraham was a man of faith. Number two, man, he was a man who persevered even though he stumbled. He really stumbled. But he was also a man of hope. And that's going to be something the author is going to bring Abraham up again in chapter 11. He's going to talk a lot about the hope Abraham had. So a man of faith, a man who persevered even when he stumbled, and a man who had hope. He was all, because, listen, Abraham, God made three promises to Abraham. Did he see any of those promises fulfilled in his lifetime? No. Did he see people, his descendants, as numerous as the stars of the sky? No. He saw one. Isaac. <laughs> he saw one. But he knew he was the covenant promise. Um, did he see... Did he see his descendants inhabit the land God promised them? Chapter 12, verse 7. No. Because when he died, there were no Jews in Israel. 
he had a little place in Beersheba in the Negev desert. But there, so no, did he see that in you, Abraham, all your people, all the nations will be blessed? Hardly. But yet did he give up? Did he doubt and question and say, okay, I don't believe anything you said to me, God. No. So, you know, you have an amazing man, stumbled, fell, made mistakes, yes, that he was a man of faith, a man who persevered, and a man of hope, despite the times he stumbled and, and fell. Was he, he, but he's the one that was going to sacrifice his son because the Lord told him to. That's, right. that's faith. Exactly. That's incredible faith. That's right. That's incredible faith. So let's just look at what he does. I mean, we've already talked about it, but just look at the, again, when he says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In my Bible, I just drew a line from imitators down to Abraham in verse 13. He's the one. He's going to choose him. Imitate him. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater, one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. In other words, that's part of the Abrahamic covenant, the unilateral promise God made to him. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now the promise is his son Isaac. How long did he and Sarah wait? 89 years. 25 years they waited. 25 years they waited. Now I don't know about you, but I'd have gotten five years into it, and I said, now, Lord, remember back in Mesopotamia, you made that promise to me? Now we're up in Haran. We've moved down into the promised land. I'm still waiting. And we go down into Egypt. I'm still waiting. Ten years later, uh, Lord, uh, you know, it's And as Woody said a moment ago, during that 25-year period, Sarah comes up to him and says, now, look, your God is not going to do this. Take my handmaid, Hagar. She'll give you a son. And horribly, terribly, Abraham says, good idea. <laughs> and he, he has sexual relations with her, and she bears a son, Ishmael. And the origin of the Arab-Israeli problem is right there. And it is. That's the origin of the problem. And so, he, he, but yet at the same time, Abraham, that's, Abraham doesn't lose his salvation over that. Going back to the point... He stumbled, but he kept on going. And so he, he waited patiently. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and all the disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God, to show, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, what is he saying there? That's a little convoluted language. But the heirs of the promise would be all the people that came from Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, and then that explosion of population in Egypt and so on. They would, they would remember God made this promise, land, seed, and blessing, and he made an oath, a vow. He promised to do this. And he goes on, verse 18. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, let me stop there. 
God made a promise and God swore, made a vow, swore an oath. Two things. I made a promise and he makes a vow. This will, it's an unconditional, unilateral covenant of promise. Did Abraham believe that? Did Isaac believe that? Yes. Did Jacob believe that? Yes. Did the 12 sons of Jacob believe it? Yes. I mean, you know, they are stumble all over the place, but they believed it. And they go into the land, and they inhabit the land. I'm moving ahead hundreds of years. And so the author is saying here, now listen. They give us an example to hold fast to the hope set before us. If Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the Jewish people held fast to that hope, that promise, should you? Let's put it another way. If God kept his promise to them, will he keep his promise to you? God has made a whole bunch of promises to us. What evidence do you have from the Bible? What evidence do you have that God keeps his promises? A good place to start is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So does God, when he says something, I promise you that I will fill in the blank. Can you, can you bank on that promise? That's the author saying. Hold fast to the hope set before us. And now he's, he's going to add an additional reason why we should have hope, you know, which is approximately 2,000 years after Abraham. When, when he's writing this, it's about 2,000 years after Abraham. For you and me, it's 4,000 years after Abraham. He offers another example, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Let me stop there for a minute. So he's adding an additional reason why we can hope. What does he mean by the inner place behind the curtain? What, what does he mean by that language? Seated on the right hand of God. Yeah, in the Holy of Holies, the curtain was torn in half, and the, the, the access to God now is completely open. You don't have to go through the priesthood and offer sacrifices and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. All that stuff is done. Because Jesus has gone on as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We were introduced to that, uh, well, it was really several weeks ago. And now chapter 7 is going to begin to explain what that means. So I want to remind you of, he's bringing it up again now. In the new covenant, we do have a high priest. There is a high priest in the new covenant. But that high priest in the new covenant is Jesus. And so that, if you're a Jew in A.D. 60-something, when this book was probably written, and you hear the word high priest, or the phrase high priest, you're going to think the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that starts with Aaron and grows through his sons and ends up with Levi and all of the different groups that make up the Levi tribe. They're the ones that serve in the temple. They're the ones that oversee the sacrificial system. Is that what he's talking about? That high priesthood? Because what, what have we learned so far in the book of Hebrews? That old covenant and old order has been fulfilled. It's set aside. 
So Jesus isn't a high priest according to that order. Because that's all done. Not the Aaronic priesthood with the sacrificial system. That's all done. That's fulfilled. And Jesus isn't of that order. By the way, of what tribe was Jesus? Yes, because David was of the tribe of... Benjamin. No, Judah. Judah. He's Judah. the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. I mean, he's descended from David and all that. That's the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called that in the book of Revelation. So he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he can't possibly be of the Levitical priesthood. He's impossible. So his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. And it's going to last forever. And it's going to last forever. Amen. So now, he's going he's to, we have about 20 minutes, and this is, we're in a great position to start this now. So what I just said the last couple of minutes, does that make sense? In the new covenant, is there a priesthood? Yes. It's Jesus is our high priest, interceding for us, the right hand of the Father, and all that that we've been talking about. But he has to show something, because you're a Jewish person reading this in the AD 60s, you think, wait, I'm all confused. <coughs> He's our high priest. Now, all my images of the high priest is tied with the Levitical priesthood that comes from Aaron and all the stuff that Aaron was supposed to do and all that. What are you talking about? Totally different priesthood. Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so a Jewish person in the AD 60s hearing that, oh, that's in Genesis 10. Or uh, not 10, 14. And you think, okay, my goodness. Because Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. So he's not like a major figure in the Old Testament that just keeps coming up every chapter. Abraham's all over the place. Moses is all over the place. Now he introduces, he's after the order of Melchizedek. We've got to explain that. By the way, Melchizedek in Hebrew is Melech is king. Zadok is he's the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. He's the king of righteousness, which is really interesting. All right, now, let's talk a little bit of, uh, well, let me do it this way. Do you remember anything about Melchizedek? Okay, I think Joel said, mm-hmm, which means I'm going to call on him. <laughs> what, what do you remember? Because I mean, he's, he's a fairly obscure figure. He doesn't, he only comes up twice in the Old Testament. Abraham met him after winning a battle and then gave him 10% of his plunder. Okay, very good. That's, you nailed it. That's the key thing. Uh, Abraham, it's in Genesis 14. Abraham has just fought a battle. That, uh, several kings had captured his nephew Lot. Ketelaomer is one of them. And he fights, he gets him rescued. But in winning the battle, which was typical in the ancient world, you plundered the, the, uh, the spoils of your enemy. And he was way up north, so he's coming back down. And not very far from Salem, which is very ancient Jerusalem, Melchizedek comes out. And it says Abraham pays tithes to him. 
And Melchizedek is called the priest of God and the king of Salem. It's very important. Melchizedek, he's called the priest of God and the king of Salem. So Melchizedek has two offices. What are the offices? Priest and king. Do you understand what I just said? Mm -hmm. So here's Melchizedek. If Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is Melchizedek? He has two titles. He is the priest of the Most High God, and he was the king of Salem. Does Jesus hold two offices called priest and king? Yes. He's our high priest of the new covenant, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Is Aaron a king? Is the Levitical priesthood kings? No. So he is not of the Aaronic priesthood. He is a Melchizedekian priesthood who is both a priest of the Most High God and king of Salem. And Salem, again, is very ancient Jerusalem, which is pretty extraordinary. And then in Psalm 110, it is said of the one Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put all things under your feet, all things under submission, because you are after the order of Melchizedek. So in Psalm 110, we learn prophetically, because Psalm 110 is a Messianic psalm, prophetically, that Messiah will be of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So a very sharp, well-informed, well-educated Jew would understand what he's saying. Oh, that obscure passage in Psalm 110 that refers to Messiah is, is now filled in. I start to understand this, that the new covenant which he inaugurates and over which he is now the high priest is not after the order of Aaron through Levi and all that, but from Melchizedek. And this is what he has to explain and prove. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. So have I given enough of background here? And Joel did a real good job of summarizing the key element in Genesis 14. So let's begin to analyze chapter 7. Now, you'll see the verse 1 of, of chapter 7, 4. It's explaining who Melchizedek is. It's the last person mentioned in verse 20. Now he explains it. For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. I already said that, but that is extremely important for you to notice that. Melchizedek is a king, just like Messiah is. And Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, just like Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, all the spoils they gained after the battle. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Then 
he is also king of Salem. That's the early Jerusalem. That mountain, 2,500 feet in the Judean mountains, uh, Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this is a little bit theological here, because if he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither beginning nor end, is Melchizedek a theophany. Isn't that a great word? An appearance of God. Is Melchizedek Melchizedek, like the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, an appearance of God taking on human flesh? Uh, Maybe. I'm not sure I want to get into that. But his point is this. The Melchizedekian priesthood is forever. The Aaronic priesthood, when does it end? At Jesus. It ends with the cross. When Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection is completed, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical system, the sacrifices end. So, the, And that, that, that was explained in the Old Testament. That That's, that's going to not always list, list forever, but he's telling us here, the priesthood of Melchizedek goes on forever. Resembling the Son of God, as with the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the priesthood of Melchizedek doesn't know an end. It goes on. Now, it tells us in verse 4, So how great this man, in other words, Melchizedek was a man, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people, that is, from the brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from those received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who's the inferior? Abraham. Who's the superior? Melchizedek. Now I know that this is this is a, 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 this is a bit difficult, but what he is trying to show us is that the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood according to Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. And so let's think of the example he used. In ancient Israel, here's Joe Israel. I'll pretend like I'm Joe Israel. And let's pretend that Joe is a Levite, a Levitical priest. Every year, part of my obligation was to pay him a tenth. That's how the priests were supported. There was no other way they were supported. They didn't get a salary. There was no 401k. That's how they were supported. So what did he just say? When I pay my annual tithe to him, we're equals. Right? We're both Jews. We have different roles and responsibilities. But as he says, the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, they're equal. 
Different roles, different responsibilities, they're equal. But when Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek, verse 7, what's the conclusion? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham and Melchizedek were not equals. Abraham is paying tithes to his superior. So in that sense, you have a major contrast with the Levitical priesthood. Do you follow what he's saying? Or are you lost with it? Okay, we're playing living statues here, and I'm not sure if I should go on or not. But that's, I know this is hard, but he's trying to show why is the Melchizedekian priesthood superior? Well, first of all, just think of what happened there after he battled Ketelomer and paid those tithes and was blessed by Melchizedek. That was an inferior paying homage to a superior. Number eight, verse eight. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now that really, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't get that, but what he's saying is, in effect, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. Because Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, came from Abraham. So he's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. And since Levi was in the loins of Abraham, in effect, he says, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek too. Do you follow that? It's kind of a little, it's a little bizarre but he's trying to show Melchizedek's priesthood is superior. As a matter of fact, when Abraham, this is what he said, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek after that battle with Ketelomer, in effect, Levi was paying tithes to him because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Follow that? It's a stretch. <laughs> What's that? It's a stretch. It's, <laughs> well, but, yeah, I, I agree, but he's just saying that it's because Levi comes from Abraham, in effect, Levi, an inferior, is in the loins of Abraham generations later, still acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek. It is a stretch. But he's just, as a matter of fact, that's probably, he says, as a matter of fact, that's probably what you could say. He's just arguing that any way you look at it, Melchizedek is... is superior. Is, is superior. Superior. Yep. Where is Melchizedek in today's gospel? Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. I'm, I'm not sure I'm asking you, answering your question. In today's gospel, or, okay. what you want to do is connect Jesus with Melchizedek. That's what he's trying to do here. Connect Jesus. It's it, a type of, in other words, a type of yes. a king and a priest. That's right. That's right. Because he, he, at the end of chapter 7, uh, sorry, end of chapter 6, and we had seen it in an earlier chapter, Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest. And as we have said, I said it twice this hour, Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. Right? If you can remember that sentence, that's kind of the theological center. Okay, what kind of priest is he? Is it like the Aaronic priesthood in the Levites? 
who offered sacrifices to people law. No, no. Jesus isn't after the order of Aaron. He's after the order of Melchizedek, who is both a king and a priest of the Most High God. But he had no death, right? So where is he now? How long was I mean, he on earth? I, I, I mean, Jesus, we know that Jesus, you know, is at the right hand of, of God. Where is Melchizedek? Yeah, where the heck is that guy? <laughs> where did he come from? Well, <laughs> I'm more interested in where he's at. Well, uh, well, okay. Uh, that's a great question. It really is. If, if Melchizedek was a theophany, an appearance of God, in other words, uh, a pre-incarnate appearance, Jesus, in other words, shows up as, in other words, Melchizedek is Jesus before the cross. Melchizedek. Then the answer to your question is, it's Jesus. That, I mean, if, 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 if Melchizedek, 2,000 years before Christ shows up, is uh, it's called a theophany in theology, an appearance of God, a pre-incarnate appearance of God, then your answer to your question is it's Jesus. So in today's gospel, he's Jesus. Yeah. You want to compare him as an angel of God. Well, that would be another, yeah, that's another, uh, the angel of the Lord. But let's leave that out. Let's sit that over here for right now. But in answering your question, I always identify Melchizedek with Jesus. Now I tell, listen, when we started Hebrews, I told you this is, this is hard going at places, but it's explaining something that's very important in terms of, of this new covenant, this new order of things. Now, there's one more thing. Jews have a terrible time with that. They do. It is hard, yes. It is hard. That, but that, Woody. That's one of the. That's one of the reasons why, the book of Hebrews can be so important, for a Jewish person. Who comes to faith in Christ to really understand, what does it mean that Jesus is my Messiah? Answer: Study the book of Hebrews. Now that can mean for you and me as Gentiles yeah. who come to faith in Christ. But for a Jewish person, because it's just loaded, and you've already seen that, loaded with Old Testament quotations, Old Testament figures, and Old Old Testament language. It's all the sacrificial stuff. And it's just all pointing to Jesus fulfilling all this stuff. And that's what's so magnificent about the book of Hebrews, because it was written very soon after Jesus went back to the Father, written to Jews by a Jew to explain to them here is the change that has occurred. This is what it means when we say Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, fulfilling the entire law and what the new covenant, because new covenant is in the Old Testament. Now that new covenant is really explained. And it is a very liberating book. As I told you, I have a number of friends who are Jewish people, um, and most of them have put their faith in Christ. And their favorite book is the book of Hebrews. Because it really does, but it also, for a person who is Jewish, who rejects the idea of Jesus as Messiah, almost every verse there's pushback. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just an unwillingness to accept what it's what it's arguing. Was he here for generations, perhaps? 
<clears throat> I understand Levi himself or his ties through Abraham. Abraham so that was was um, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Is he still around for those generations? Because he received ten. Yeah, it, there is no evidence at all uh, after Abraham and, and the and things that occurred in Genesis 14 and all that. There's never a mention of Melchizedek again as in a figure who appears in anything. So uh, the answer to that, as far as uh, uh, as far as we know, there is no other important relevance or appearance of Melchizedek after Genesis 14. Okay. I mentioned Psalm 110 mentions him, but it's tying Messiah to Melchizedek, which is what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here. All right. Now, there's, let me start one other thing. <laughs> If, verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, could it? No. I mean, no. But if it could, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of, Mer- of, of Aaron. So what is he saying? It's, it's a rhetorical question, cleverly phrased. But what is he really saying? Since perfection could not be attainable under the Levitical priesthood, what's the implication we should, the inference we should draw? There, is no there has to be another one. Because if perfection cannot be attained through the Levitical priesthood who taught the law to the people, then there has to be another way for this to occur. So he's setting us up because he's already shown, or I hope you followed that, he's already shown that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's established that. You saw it in Abraham paying tithes to him. You saw it in what's hard to stretch it but even Levi in the loins of Abraham paying ties to Now he says, there's one other theological point I want to make. And I'm going to parrot it. Since it was impossible to attain perfection through the priesthood under Levi, who taught the people the law as well, what's the implication? The inference for the draw is there has to be another one. And that's the priesthood of Melchizedek, which Jesus represents. And so we're going to pick up there next week because I can't possibly get 12 through 19, 18 done. It's impossible. At least I don't think I can do that. I can't cover that. So I want to start right away with verse 12 next week. And then we'll continue to move into the rest of this chapter, which is just so fantastic. And then chapter 8, he's going to bring up the new covenant. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant. He's going to tie those two together. Are you guys with me on the hanging in here with me? This? Yeah. Now, I want to remind you one more time. Uh, we meet next week, the 12th, same time, everything, but the 19th, I have to be in Pennsylvania to deal with some things with my mother's estate and all that. And then we'll start again the 26th. So there's one, one Wednesday here we won't meet. I think Fred will be sending out, I already let him and Joel know that, but probably sending a little reminder about that too. So I'll see you next week. I'm going to pray and. Then you can go home and let all this just percolate in your mind and yes. heart and sink in and yes. think through it. Lord, we thank you.
We thank you that Jesus is a, is a high priest of the new covenant. He intercedes for us. He represents us. It, it tell, incredibly in John 17, 15, he's praying for us even now. That is an almost unimaginable, incomprehensible fact of the ongoing ministry of Jesus as our high priest. That's one of the things the author is going to be talking about. One of the, what are the things he does for us? He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He asks the Father to help us avoid the evil one in all his temptations, to be wise and discerning as we live our lives, and to walk in loving obedience with him. Oh, Lord, we thank you. You, you provide us such a magnificent salvation. Your grace is, is un, unimaginable what you've extended to us. And it all keeps coming back to Jesus. And as we were introduced here today in this passage, he's not only a high priest to the Most High God, he's also a king. And that's what Jesus is. He's a high priest of the new covenant, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And I just thank you for those grand truths. Help us as we try to digest all of this and understand all of this. This is the meat of God's word. It's, and this isn't pablum or milk. These are the hard things of God's word, but it's helping us to understand the depths of, of understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Go, we go our separate ways. We ask you to help us to represent you well. We pray for all the men. I know a number of them are traveling and are doing different things, so we ask you to be with them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.